This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our scripture today is the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Holy Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, our theme this morning is faith and politics, and we've just come through a rather exhausting political season here in the United States, having come through an election year, and of course, all of that chaos didn't really end with election day and seemed to continue all the way through into this year until uh, this past week in which we saw uh, the transfer of power to a new administration. And so we're kind of wiped out on politics, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. We, I think most of us, right, feel burned out from it all, feel worn out, feel tired, feel ready for a break. So let's just all take a deep breath and just release some of that weight, some of that negative energy. Mm. Oh, man, we need a break, at least from the partisan two-party political theater that we feature here in this country. And of course, it's good for our mental emotional and spiritual health once in a while to turn off the news, to read poetry or a novel instead of the newspaper, and to not read the comment section. And some would even argue that in the church, politics has no place. In the church, politics has no place. And I wonder if they're right. They would say that faith has nothing to do with politics. Tony Campolo once said, mixing politics and religion is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't affect the manure much, but it really messes up the ice cream. I'm sure you can guess which is which. In other words, right, if we're not careful, we can make a mess of things. And certainly from the political side, right, in our country, we live within a society that is founded on the separation of church and state. We should never be basing policy solely on the whims of one particular religion. 
or to advantage one particular religion or religious tradition, and the state should not seek to establish or support any religious tradition or obligation. But separation of church and state also means that every American has the right to practice any faith or no faith. The First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The founders also note that religious freedom is a key part of the American vision. And Thomas Jefferson argued that religious people or religious motivation shouldn't be exiled from public debate. The key is that the church shouldn't rule over the state and the state shouldn't rule over the church. And Martin Luther King Jr. captured this sentiment precisely in his quote when he said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. The conscience. The church can be a source of moral clarity and insight. And in fact, if it isn't, I'd say it's betraying Jesus and the prophets who were before him. Now, one might attempt to have a non-political faith. That seems very attractive, and a number of folks uh, try to pursue that kind of a faith, a non-political faith. And so a faith that ignores politics or political dimensions um, might seem attractive, especially in this moment, especially in this day and age. And I understand completely why that um, has a draw. And we've also seen over-politicized faith go sideways and go wrong, right? Witness the religious right or the overwhelming number of white evangelicals who voted uh, a certain way in 2016 and then again in 2020. And you can witness Hobby Lobby, for example, denying health care coverage of contraception to its employees based on their religious convictions. And so you might say that such a politicized faith has caused many to leave the church behind, maybe even leave God behind. And who can blame them? But is the answer then for people of faith or churches to ignore political issues? Is that the, is that the right path? Is the answer for us to say to stay silent on the pressing matters of our day? Well, I think the answer is no. You won't be surprised by that. Because I think a non-political faith is actually not possible. To withdraw from political engagement, you see, is itself a political move, a political statement. Because ignoring the hungry is political. Ignoring racism is political. Ignoring the threat of violence is political. Ignoring climate change is political. Ignoring the homeless is political. Ignoring mass incarceration is political. You get the idea. And the, the idea that one can be non-political is actually a position filled with privilege. 
It's filled with privilege. It means you aren't worried about going hungry or being kicked out of your housing or losing access to health care. And it means you're probably white. Let's be honest. And it must also be said that a, a Christianity that doesn't have a word to say on the political issues of our time is a faith that has nothing to do with Jesus. Listen again to how our text today begins. It's easy to just skip right over this and get into the rest of the passage, but our text begins after John was arrested Jesus began proclaiming the good news of God after John was arrested. Before Jesus even says a word, before he calls his disciples, before he starts his ministry, it is already political. John the Baptist was Jesus' mentor. He was the one out in the desert preparing the way, and preparing the way included speaking truth, to the powers that be. That's how you land in prison, both then and now. When Jesus heals a leper who has been outcast by their society, you better believe it is political. When Jesus steps in to stop the stoning of a woman in a patriarchal society, it is political. When Jesus invites the unclean and the outcast to join him for a meal, it is political. When Jesus flips over tables in the temple, you bet that was political. And when Jesus is arrested, flogged, and murdered by the state, the one thing all historians agree is the hardest of the hard facts about the historical Jesus, you better believe it was political. In fact, in his commentary in the Gospel of Mark, Ched Myers notes the similarities between the writer of the Gospel of Mark with Martin Luther King Jr. He says each was trying to speak pastorally and prophetically into a conflictive national and international moment of war, political terror, and profound social injustice. Their respective witnesses arose from historically oppressed communities of conscience who knew plenty about resisting Pharaoh while struggling to remain human. A beautiful sentiment, struggling to resist Pharaoh while remaining human. And so the very Gospels themselves, right, the very foundation of any faith or religion belonging to Jesus Christ or connected to Jesus Christ, they are steeped in a political context and birthed out of the ancient longing for justice. And this isn't, as John Dominic Crossan put it, just the necessary background, in quotes, for understanding the Gospels. It is the essential matrix for reading them in any way that's historically responsible or theologically accurate. And so to divorce Jesus from his politically charged context is to come up with something that isn't really Jesus at all. But a word at this moment, while our faith and its desire to remain faithful to Jesus must have a political edge, that doesn't mean it is partisan or yields its allegiance to one particular 
party or nation. Now, I understand that many of us may lean toward one political party than another. That's natural, right? That's natural. But our job, regardless of who is in power, and we just saw a shift at least in terms of the presidential administration, no matter who is in power, to be the conscience of the state, no matter who is elected, because power so easily corrupts, and because justice too often remains elusive. And of course, we have to be completely honest that there's been plenty of damage done in this country and around the world in the name of both political parties. And so friends, our ultimate commitment must be to God and to the ways of God. The ways of God grounded in peace and justice and compassion, not to any political power, party, nation, or individual. But that ultimate commitment will always have political dimensions. I would say not only will it have, it must have. Well, the definition of politics is this. Maybe I should have started with this, but the definition is politics is the set of activities that are associated with making decisions in groups. Right? Politics is how we decide to live together as people, as humans, in community, in society. Politics is also the forms of power relations that help determine things such as the distribution of resources or status in a group setting. The distribution of resources or status is political. What was our verse for reflection this morning? Luke 4, Jesus announcing in his ministry, the launching of his ministry, the inauguration of his ministry, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Jesus gets political right out of the gate. And he never stopped. So perhaps, so should we, if in fact we desire to follow him. And of course, there are plenty of historical examples of followers of Jesus attempting to faithfully follow his way, to faithfully proclaim God's ways of justice in the face of oppression and injustice. Hard to pick a single anecdote, but there was a headline from a May 5, 2018, so almost three years ago, a May 5, 2018 story in the Baltimore Sun that read, once prosecuted, now honored the Catonsville 9 get a memorial marker. And the story reads like this. Police once arrested Margarita Melville on Frederick Road in Catonsville. They drove her to jail and handcuffed her, and FBI agents knocked on her parents' door. But times change. Fifty years after authorities arrested Melville, her husband and seven friends for stealing and burning draft records, the state recognized the Catonsville Nine on Saturday with a memorial sign on the grounds of the Catonsville Public Library right across the street from the Knights of Columbus parking lot where they committed that act. 
the 88-year-old Melville returned to the scene of the crime where she and fellow pacifists seized and burned 378 draft records in protest of the Vietnam War. They would be convicted of destruction of U.S. property, destruction of Selective Service files, and interfering with the Selective Service Act of 1967 and sentenced to prison. Their small ceremony marked the 50th anniversary of the protest, led by brothers Philip and Daniel Berrigan, both Catholic priests, in May of 1968. And Melville, one of only two surviving members of the original Catonsville Nine, was the only one to attend. We were burning draft cards in Catonsville to protest the government's burning of children in Vietnam, Margarita Melville said, quoting Father Daniel Berrigan's famous line. People inspired by their faith to say, this is not right, this is unjust, and we are going to act. Well, their actions inspired similar protests around the country, and under increasing pressure, Congress ended the draft in 1973. It took another five years but they helped raise awareness. They highlighted an injustice. They said, this is not right. Our faith compels us to say so, even at cost to ourselves. Well, the nine of them spent weeks planning their raid on the Catonsville Draft Board, and on May 17, 1968, they entered and began ransacking cabinets, throwing selective service files into wire trash bags, Baskets and in the parking lot, they doused the records with a homemade napalm. This was very intentional to highlight what was happening over in Vietnam. Homemade napalm of ivory soap flakes and gasoline, a recipe they took from a U.S. military handbook. And Margarita said, I personally put a match to them. She said that looking back with a sense of pride. The nine encircled the small fire, held hands, and prayed, and waited for the police. What a beautiful picture of faith in action. Held hands and prayed, but this wasn't just any prayer meeting, and waited to be arrested. Well, Margarita ended up serving nine months in a federal prison, And once, the story says, she went down this road in a police van, but on Saturday she traveled it again, hurrying to a panel discussion at which she was a guest of honor. Her faith was a witness to the injustice of empire. Her faith said it is not okay to force, to require American youths to travel half the globe to attack, burn, and kill Vietnamese youth. Her faith said God's way is peace, not war. Her faith said imperial violence is not justified. Her faith was political. Her faith was faithful to the way of Jesus. May it be so with you and with me. Amen. And namaste.
are invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.